I need to introduce myself to you. As you can hear, I have a southern accent. <laughs> I come from the south of Africa. Um, I was born very, very close to the, the sea in a place called Cape Town. Have you heard of Cape Town? Okay. And then I emigrated to the north of the country called Pretoria, the capital city. And uh, I was probably there for about 32, 33 years. And um, I've been in South Carolina now for about uh, eight months. And it's lovely to be here. I must say the people are very friendly, very kind, very welcoming. And uh, I don't say that to you to appreciate the message I'll bring, but I say that because I believe it to be true. Um, the other thing I must tell you that these, you know what these things are? You know what has happened to mine? <laughs> it has done something that it shouldn't have done. And um, I hope that I'm going to be able to recover it. Oh, there we go. We're going to come to a time of prayer. And as we do, I'm going to ask you if we can spend a few moments in silence first. As you know, uh, whether we are mature as a Christian or whether we are perhaps still infants in Christ, the reality is that we sin day by day. We may not like to admit it, but it's reality. Saying word, thought, and deed. So we can spend just a few moments in silent prayer before God, and then I will lead you in prayer according to the bulletin. So let's bow in silent prayer. Almighty God, you are rich in mercy to all who humbly call upon you. Hear us as we come to you confessing our sins and pleading for your forgiveness. We have broken your laws by our words and deeds and the sinful affections of our hearts. We confess our disobedience and ingratitude, our pride and stubbornness, and all our failures towards you and our fellow men. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Grant that we may hereafter serve and please you in newness of life through the merit and meditation of Jesus, our only Saviour. Amen. And then from Hebrews two fourteen and 15. The assurance of pardon, the confidence we can have in knowing that our God is heard, that our God is forgiven. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And we pray like this in the majestic and glorious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
We have two Bible readings. The first one comes from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you'll turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 6 comes after chapter 5. I notice in your bulletin it says uh, NIV, I have the NIV, and if you don't, um, I apologize for that in advance. Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we read from verse 1 through to 15. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you... Your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear Israel and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide. Wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, And his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. As you know, this is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. We continue by turning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. Matthew, chapter 28. And I'm going to be reading to you from verse 16 to the end of the passage. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. 
This is the word of God, and we thank God for giving us his precious word. Let's pray. Our Father, we have read your word. Before that, we have prayed. Before that, we have declared our faith. We have sung your praises. And as we come to the exposition, we pray for help. We pray for the speaker, and we pray for him and the listeners that each of us might hear from God. Father, we pray that you would be gracious and merciful, that you would refresh us and edify us, and that you would even challenge us, causing a positive response and a decided commitment to obediently follow your instructions as we pray to you with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. I grappled with what I should title my sermon, Is it the authority of the risen Christ, or is it our mission as saints of God? I prepared this sermon in Gatlinburg, in Tennessee, in the Smoky Mountains this past week. And for me it was so wonderful to be in the mountains. I love the mountains. We call it the bush, the forest. And, and it was so green and so lush, and it was such a privilege to be there. And then, of course, I drove from Reedville to here, and I came through the farmlands and the little forests and that. It was so beautiful, so wonderful. And we spent a week out there in Gatlinburg. Uh, it was wonderful to be with our son from Nebraska and his family, our daughter, whom we stay with, and her family. And um, it was so beautiful to observe um, what God has prepared for us, what God has given us, this, this beautiful surrounding, these trees, the shrubs, um, the smoky mountains, pleasing to the eye, so delightful to sort of just soak it all in. And then I had to stop. And I had to realize something there's something more precious, more majestic and more wonderful, more pleasing to the eye, more delightful, and that is the gospel of Jesus. Amen? Amen. It's so wonderful to see the creation, but it's far better to experience the new creation. Now we want to, as we look at this passage this morning, first put it into its context, into its setting, and Jesus has risen from the dead. He's ready to return to heaven from where he came. His meritorious salvific work has been completed. His substitutional death has been received by the Father and accepted by the Father. The curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. And now we have access direct to the Father. We don't need to go through a priest. We don't need to go through a pope. We don't even need to go through a pastor. We can go directly to God to access his ear for pardon, for forgiveness, for salvation. His substitutional resurrection was received and accepted because the tomb was open, the tomb was empty, assuring us that we too will one day rise. All prophecy about the Messiah and his earthly ministry had now been completed, his mission was fulfilled. And we realize that, that all those whom God chose before the creation of the world shall be redeemed from the slave market of Satan. 
But you know something? The incarnation is incomplete without the ascension. Jesus came, Jesus fulfilled, Jesus needs to return. His rescue mission is completed. But there's a twist in the tale. His mission is completed, but our mission is incomplete. Perhaps there are other few matters, and I don't preach for very long. It's normally just an hour and a half. So just another few introductory matters. Um, you notice in verse 16 that Matthew speaks of a meeting place. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So these last few verses of Matthew don't deal with Jesus' ascension. They deal with the resurrection. You see, the ascension happened on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives was near Bethany, about two miles from Jerusalem. Why? Why did Jesus not say, well, meet me there? Why does he say, meet me here in Galilee? You see, they had to get as far away from Jerusalem as possible, from the high priests, from the Sanhedrin, from the Jews who persecuted Jesus from the centurion, from the soldiers. They had to get as far away as possible. Why? For their own safety. You see, the security of the 11 disciples, or apostles, I should say, and the 500 believers were at risk. They had to be far away. We also notice that there was worship. Look at verse 17. Then they saw him and worshipped him. Now remember that before their eyes is the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He was dead and he's now alive. And that word worship is an interesting word because it's rooted in the concept of one falling to your knees with your forehead against the ground and expressing profound reverence. And in this particular case, it was acknowledging that someone of superior rank was before them. It was the Messiah, the one who had died who had now risen from the dead, was before them. Yet we also noticed that some doubted. The doubters were not amongst the 11. The doubters must have been amongst the 500. The doubt was, did Jesus really rise from the dead? This man before us, is this the risen Christ? That word doubt is exactly the same word that Jesus used in the context of speaking to Peter, remember Peter decided he's going to walk out to Jesus on the lake. And he walked on water. Phenomenal. And all of a sudden he was distracted by the things that were happening around him. The waves, the wind. He took his eyes off Jesus and what happened? He started sinking. And Jesus reaches out his hand and rescues him. Matthew fourteen thirty one. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why do you doubt? He doubted Jesus and he started to sink and Jesus rescued him. And when he was rescued, Matthew 14, 33 says, Peter acknowledges truly you are the son of God. Now, there are many, many people in churches today, and we know that all people are not Christian in churches. That's the way it is. Many people are Christianized, and during those turbulent times in their life, 
they start to waver, they start to doubt. They're uncertain about who this Jesus is and what this Jesus did and what he can do for them. How he can take them through their traumas in life and how he can become their rock of salvation. And they are like that until they like Peter and acknowledge you're the son of God and they trust him for eternal salvation. Now having said those things, I want to give you a roadmap. And the roadmap is we're going to consider three things today. The first is an astounding claim. The second is an astounding commission. And the third is an astounding command. So the first issue that I would like to place before you for reflection and consideration this morning is an astounding claim. Look at verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now remember, there were some people who were doubting. And it comes with this most astounding claim. You see, the doubters didn't grasp who Jesus was. And I want to stop for a while and consider who Jesus is. Particularly, who was he on earth? Well, Isaiah says to us, and we sing the song, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. When we get to Matthew chapter 1, he shall be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew says, and he will be called Emmanuel because he is God with us. And we get to John chapter 1 and we read, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And then we get to Hebrews chapter 1. And we read that the Father appointed Jesus heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. And the writer says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And then he writes, After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And then Paul writing to the church at Colossae, he says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he who is God comes to planet Earth, and he takes on the human flesh, but without sin. He doesn't take on the sinful nature. And he willingly restricts himself of many of the aspects of his godness, yet he remains God, the God-man. And he demonstrates who he is by all the miracles and healings and exorcisms and the other supernatural acts. He has power over the human body. He can restore the eyesight and the hearing and the dumbness. He heals paralysis, hemorrhaging. He even raises the dead. He has power over natural substances. Remember how he took a few fish and a few loaves and how he multiplied it? On two occasions, and he feeds thousands of people. Remember, after his resurrection, the disciples were out on the lake trying to fish, and they couldn't fish. 
And he says, throw the net on that side. And all of a sudden, the whole net is full of fish, almost breaking. He has power over nature. And just one word, he says to the wind and the waves, silent. And there was calmness. He has power over evil forces. He casts out evil spirits. Can you remember how remarkable the power was that he exercised over Satan during the temptations? Matthew 4, Luke 4. He has power over his own death and resurrection. He submitted to death as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He succumbs to death. Yet according to scripture on the third day he rises again from the dead. So there's the eleven. And there's 500 of his disciples. They were aware of these things, but some doubted. And Jesus goes further. Right before them stood the risen Christ. And as he stands before them, he declares that he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. As the risen Messiah. As the living Savior, Jesus claims, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Remember, he limited himself when coming to earth. And now all that which he restricted himself of has been restored to him. One of the commentators, and I found this so amusing, one of the commentators says that with language as if he's already in heaven, with language as if he has all the resources of heaven at his disposal. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That word heaven is a very important word and an interesting word. Maybe you can recall in reading 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2, where Paul writes, and I believe he's speaking of himself, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. What is the third heaven? We go outside, we look up into the sky on this beautiful day, and we see the first heaven. And then, as you know, SpaceX and Hubble spacecraft, they play around in the second heaven. But there's a third heaven, and that's the abode of God. And that is what Jesus is referring to. He's referring to the place where God is and from where God exercises all rule and all reign and all authority over all of his heaven and all of creation and even planet Earth. It's the same word that Matthew uses in Matthew 28 too. You may want to glance there. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and was going to the tomb, rolled back the stone, and sat on it. There was an angel from heaven, an angel from the very presence of God. So the authority Jesus speaks about when he refers to heaven is the authority of where God is. It's the reign, it's the rule. Before Jesus' crucifixion, his power and authority was over the physical world and over spiritual forces. 
And now he claims full rule, full authority over all heaven and all earth and everything in between. And those who doubt his resurrection, to them he claims full power, full authority over the seen and the unseen. He's Lord and he's King. There's no power greater than his. All power, all authority that exists is subservient to Jesus who is Lord. And coupled to this astounding claim is that he has some 500 followers. And amongst them there are doubters. He has no military, he has no finances, he has no resources. And he's about to say to them, Go and conquer the world. And faith is needed to believe him and to believe what he says. No doubters can go on that journey. Faith is needed. You see, Jesus is living. Jesus is reigning. Jesus is Lord and Christ. And he has sovereign rule and sovereign reign over all heaven and earth. Jesus is Lord. Now, respectfully, I want to say this. Unless you believe that, unless you are part of his rule and his reign, the rest of my message is not going to mean very much. So I want to ask you, I want to be provocative. Do you believe Jesus' claim, his astounding claim about him having all authority? You believe that this Jesus is Lord. Now the second issue I want to place before you for consideration and reflection this morning is an astounding commission. Look at verse 19. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So when you look at that verse, you see there's three movements there. There's go, there's make, there's baptize. I've been a Christian for a couple of years, and in the beginning of my Christianity, it seemed as though the emphasis was on go. In those days, in the late 70s and early 80s, everything was go, go, go. Go into the mission field type of thing. But I've come to learn and understand that the actual thrust of that verse is make. So let's examine these three movements very briefly. First of all, Jesus says, go to all nations. Astounding. Because Jesus is born a Jew. And remember, God promised Abraham that he would become a great nation, uncountable in number, and would be blessed as God's chosen people. So the Jews claimed their ancestry from Abraham. That's right, it's true. He chose them to be a special people. That's also true. He chose them to reach the nations. And that's also true. Yet what did they do? They spread throughout the known world. They established businesses. They erected synagogues. Sure, they brought in a few converts. During the exile, they were spread through the nations. During the Roman Empire, they were distributed as well. But what did they miss? They missed something significant. Remember, they draw their ancestry from Abraham. But they miss 
Genesis 12, 3, which reads like this. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I'll curse. And then it goes on. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And all the peoples there includes all nations on the earth, all the Gentile nations, all the non-Jewish nations. So Jesus' commission includes every ethnicity, every tongue, every culture, every people. He says, go. And that word go carries the idea of depart or go your way. It's exactly the same word or concept rather that the woman are spoken of as they hurried away from the empty tomb. Look at verse 8, Matthew 28, 8. So the woman hurried away from the tomb and afraid yet filled with joy ran to tell his disciples. So Jesus had risen. And there was the angel speaking to the ladies, reminding them, go and tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee. They departed from the tomb. They hurried away. They hurried to the 11 apostles. They were afraid, yet they were filled with joy. They went running away from the tomb to tell. And that's the meaning of Jesus' go in Matthew 28, 19. Go with joy. Go carrying the salvation message. Run to tell it. There's urgency. The clock is ticking. Time is running out. Don't be afraid. I have all the authority. I rule. I reign. I send you. Of course, we know what the results are going to be. Because in the book of Revelation 5.9, we read, You are worthy to take the scroll and open the seals because you were slain with your blood. You purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. In other words, the elect of God has spread throughout all the nations, all the tribes, all the people groups, all the ethnicities, all the language groups. And Jesus is sending them and even you and me to find them. And how do we find them? By sharing the gospel. The next movement in this verse is make disciples. And this is astounding. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So once within these people groups, these ethnicities, make disciples. Don't make disciples for the Jewish faith. Don't make disciples for Paul or Apollos or Cephas, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1. Make disciples for Jesus. Make disciples is not having a revival meeting. Make disciples is not an evangelistic crusade. Make disciples for Jesus. The concept of making disciples is radical. It's deep. As the evening approached... On the day of the crucifixion, Matthew writes in 27 from verse 57 to 60, he says this. A rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus, going to Pilate, 
He asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it on his own tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Now, what he did was extremely risky. It was very, very dangerous. But at the same time, it was very thoughtful and very precious and extremely costly. And you need to ask the question, why did he do this? And the answer is because he was a disciple. He was a disciple of Jesus. You see, a disciple is made through teaching and instruction. He spent time with Jesus, just as the others did. He was taught, he was instructed, and he was trained to be a disciple. And, and he knew exactly what was required of him as a disciple. You see, no one will know what it means to be a disciple unless they are taught what it means to be a disciple. No one born by the Spirit of God is born with a knowledge of God's will and a knowledge of what life and service and ministry and what preparation for heaven is all about. You're not born that way. You need to be educated. When you think of a baby, I saw a baby a moment ago. Lovely, isn't it? The principle of a baby, milk and solids. And getting the baby from milk to solids applies to all newborns in Christ. So once the disciples have been made out of the nations of the world, they need to be baptized. That's the third movement. The text says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So all have been saved out of paganism. All have been saved out of these Gentile nations need to be baptized. And as you know, this is one of the two Christian sacraments, the other being the Lord's Supper. But something that is interesting here is to note that baptism is in the name and not into the name. It's not baptism into three gods, but one God. And that's the reason Jesus says in the name, singular. The name is the triune God, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to be baptized into this name? Remember, these are disciples that are being made. It means forsaking all other gods and idols and religions. And we can stop for a moment there, or perhaps for a long time, thinking about all the idols that we might have, right? But it also means identification. Identification with the one true living God of the Bible, the creator of heaven and earth. Identification with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Identification with the incarnation and the virgin birth that he spurns so often today. Identification with the life and ministry of Jesus. Identification with the substitutional, substitutional penal death for my sin. Identification with the substitutional resurrection of the Lord Jesus for my eternal security. Identification with Jesus' return to glory from where he reigns. Identification with the fact that he's coming again. He's going to return. And when he returns, what is he going to do? 
He's going to conduct judgment. And the wicked will be damned. And the people of faith will be saved. And then he will end this world as we know it. And bring about the new heavens and the new earth, the home of righteousness. You see, baptism, my friends, is decisive and intentional. It's radical. It's a total change of allegiance. There is my new God, my new Lord. Jesus is my master. But there's more. It also means incorporation. You see, baptism says, this is my God, triune in nature, who saved my soul from ruin, forgave my sins, redeemed me from the slave market, adopted me as his child, applied the blood of Jesus to my account, justified me, sanctified me, and has become my Lord and King. And the climax of it all is that I will now say, I'm a citizen of this kingdom. This is where I belong. I'm no longer in the world. And as you know, baptism is visible. Baptism can be watched and observed. And of course, an individual will still sin. And he will repent and be forgiven. But there are onlookers. And the onlookers can see, but this person has transitioned from the kingdoms of this world, from that religion and that cult and that sect. And this person is now part of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. Look and see. This isn't fake. This isn't hypocrisy. This isn't temporal. It's not just another fad or experience. This is genuine. I now profess the name of Jesus as Lord. And more, you can watch me. Because I'm going to live a repentant lifestyle. Look at me. You see, that's the object of these movements. Go make baptize. But it doesn't stop there. There's a third thing that we need to reflect upon and consider this morning. And that is an astonishing command. Look at verse 20. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always. To the very end of the age. And this sadly is where so many churches fail. And this is where so many who make professions fall. Look at this astonishing command. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. You see this is the make or break of evangelism. Either a church does have an infrastructure to teach or it doesn't. Or perhaps those who made professions have not truly been converted to Christ. And where there's no infrastructure to teach and when there's no genuine profession, you're going to have an unhealthy church. One of the commentators said that this word teaching really means religious education because teaching needs to be covering every area of church life and personal life and ministry. Have you noticed that a worship service is teaching? It's the first time I've seen this bulletin, but ours is very similar. 
That's teaching. Sermons must be teaching. We mustn't fall for entertainment or for religious orthodoxy. We cannot be a people full of rituals. We cannot be trapped in legalism. You see, the transition from the past paganism that we were in, whether it's another religion or sect or cult or, or perhaps we were just Christianized, needs discipleship. We need teaching. We are not an adult Christian when we are born again. We need teaching. And the word teaching implies taking knowledge and imparting it to learners. Look at the text again. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Teach to obey. Everything I've commanded you. How many of you enjoy a braai? You don't know what a braai is? No, no, Todd, you can't. A barbecue. You know what a barbecue is? If you don't know, Todd will tell you. He'll explain it. Many years ago, we had a barbecue. It was a Saturday afternoon. Our kids, probably like yours, each one had chores to do. There weren't things like dishwashers in those days. So the youngest son had to go along and wash the dishes. The next son had to come along and dry it up. Everyone had to get ready. Next day is Sunday. So there I am in my study working on my sermon. I'm outside and all of a sudden, Daddy, open the door. Here's the younger son. He's about seven or eight years old. He says, Dad, I can't wash any more dishes. The drain board is full. I want to get angry. I'm busy preparing a sermon. Well, not preparing it, but honing it. I go inside. One plate there, one pot here. And of course, the old drain board is full. He didn't pack it neatly. But more than that, I look at the tub. It's full of cold, dirty, greasy water. I want to get angry, and the Lord prevents me. I drain the water, clean out the tub, and put hot water in. I rinse everything off. Clean water, hot water, dishwashing liquid, and I go through the process of washing every single thing and stacking it neatly. When I get to the end, there's lots of room. Halfway through, he says, Daddy, can I go now? <laughs> the Lord calmed me and I said, no, Kevin, you need to sit right here. You need to watch me. I'm going to teach you how to wash dishes. And I must tell you that 43 years is his age now and he knows how to wash dishes. And my point is this, teaching, education is so important and so serious, time, effort and energy needs to be invested. And it may be hard work and it may be frustrating and it may be tiring, but it's the finished product that we need because Jesus wants the finished product. 
He wants educated disciples. He says, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And that word commanded is interesting because it's an order. The Lord has all the authority in heaven and on earth and he orders his people to go and teach, to go and make disciples. And the ingredients of making disciples is everything I've taught you, everything I've commanded you. And that in the original refers to all the doctrines that Jesus taught. So he uses the Old Testament, he expounds it perfectly, and he applies his teaching. It's relevant, it's challenging, it's pointed, it's provocative. Today, you and I have the whole scripture. We don't just have the Old Testament, we have all of scripture, every doctrine, every theology. And Jesus wants all of scripture to be taught. And the word obey there means to observe by doing what has been taught. In other words, teaching must include application and application must result in lifestyle change. And failure to do this is going to result in an unhealthy church. A church that surrenders to all the passing attractions. A church that will easily adopt false teaching, such as liberalism. A church that lacks urgency and intentionality. A church that eventually dies spiritually. A church that is ready to be spat out. The Laodicean church. Well, let's apply the message I still got another hour, is that right? The Lord makes an an amazing promise here. Those who believe the claim, those who fulfill the commission, those who implement the command, the promises in verse 20, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And the end of the age implies the completion of the church age. I personally understand that from the first coming to the second coming of Christ. The writer to the Hebrews says we live in the last days. At the end of the last days will be the end of the church age. Jesus says I'll be with you until the end of the age. And as we said already, at the end of the age, there will be a judgment. There will be a real heaven. There will be a real hell. The wages of sin is death, eternal death. The rewards of faith is life, eternal life. At the end of the age, he will end all things and there will be a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness. But his promise is that he will be with all true disciples and all true disciples to the very end of the age. Is that why Paul can write in Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger or sword? And then in verse 37 to 39, he answers his question saying, No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that
that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I have four applicatory points. And the first thing I want to speak about is every generation. Our dedication and our hard work is vitally necessary. Because without it, the next generation will not carry the gospel forward to those who follow. Now, who's going to reach the next generation for Jesus? Those you and I disciple. If we don't have any feeling for the church of Christ, if we don't have any feeling for the Lord Jesus and his gospel, if we have no desire to see our descendants come to faith in Christ, if we have no feeling for those caught up in paganism, be it Islam, Judaism, Scientology, Mormonism, Buddhism, the Baha'i faith, the Jehovah Witnesses, or any other sect or cult or religion, then we're going to ignore these last five verses of the Bible, or at least of Matthew. We're going to take that and we're going to rip it out of the Bible. We'll keep Jesus to ourselves. We'll be a holy huddle. And the church will die. But we can't do that. We can't do that because to be loving is to want people, other people, lost people, whoever they are, with us in glory one day. That's loving. To be loving means to do whatever we can. To go to whatever lengths we can to prevent those around us going to hell. So the passage speaks to every generation needing to be reached. My second applicatory point to speak about is every doctrine. Now each of you have been to another church. Don't answer that. It's okay, the elders know that. They've also been to other churches. They've been on holiday, they've been to funerals, they've been to, to weddings. When last have you heard a sermon on sin or a sermon on hell? I was at a church once and I listened to a sermon, went through the whole service. The last hymn, the last hymn had one verse that referred to sin. Didn't hear the word sin in that whole service or sermon. When last have you heard a sermon about election or predestination? Or a sermon about the Holy Spirit? Or about the church victorious? When last have you heard a sermon about the assurance of salvation? When last have you heard a sermon about Christian giving and tithing? I don't want to ask you if you know all the books of the Bible off pat but have you read the bible cover to cover how many times have you been taught to read the bible have you been taught to ask questions strategic questions as you read the bible to help you understand what you're reading to remember what you're reading have you ever asked yourself the question why do so many people Loving people, friendly people, people just like you and me, nice people. Why do they get caught up in the cults and in sects? Why? 
coming back from Gatlinburg, we stopped at one of those places that have various facilities. And as I walked to the bathroom, I was confronted by a table and a signboard and a man and a woman smiling big smiles. Jehovah Witnesses. Why did the Jehovah Witnesses and the Messianic Jews not go and look for people that are not Christianized? Why do they only look for people that are Christianized? Why does Islam look for people who are Christianized? Why is it that Eastern mystic religions are so appealing to Hollywood and to the world of the arts and so many Christianized people follow them? Do you know the reason? The reason is because two biblical doctrines were never taught in their church. That's the reason. Every nation in every generation needs every doctrine. My third applicatory point is every Christian. Go behind my back and ask Todd this question. Do I really need to do it? Isn't evangelism just for the paid staff in the church? It's not for me. I've heard that so often. You see, the word disciple means Christian. If you're not a disciple, you're not a Christian. Every Christian is a disciple, and every disciple is required to do their part in going and making. Just because you don't have the gift of prayer doesn't mean you don't pray. Just because you don't have the gift of hospitality doesn't mean you don't offer hospitality. Just because you don't have the gift of faith doesn't mean you don't exercise faith. Just because you don't have the gift of service doesn't mean you don't serve. Just because you don't have the gift of encouragement doesn't mean you don't encourage. Just because you don't have the gift of giving doesn't mean you don't give. Just because you don't have the gift of mercy doesn't mean you don't show mercy. And equally, just because you don't have the gift of evangelism doesn't mean that you don't go and share the gospel. And just because you don't have the gift of teaching doesn't mean that you can't teach in a Sunday school to children or to a youth group or to ladies or to men. And if all fails, if you don't have any of the gifts that I mentioned now, have you ever considered being part of advertising, going and making? Or what about the administration of going and making? Or what about cooking a meal for somebody or babysitting so that they can go and make disciples? Every Christian is in the Lord's army. And that includes you and me. If you are saved by grace through faith, that includes you and me. Every generation needs every doctrine taken by every Christian. And my fourth applicatory point is every person. The planet is full of people. The commission of Jesus is to all nations. Revelation 5, 9. Every ethnicity. Now we know that there are many foreign missions. We know that. We understand that. And we know that everyone can't go. We understand that. I pastored three churches in my life. 
the one for five years, the one for 14 months just before we emigrated, and the other one for 29 years. And the one that I pastored for 29 years was a totally white congregation. Absolutely. And then three years after I started there, there was democracy in our country. And now there was freedom of movement. And very soon we had people from all ethnicities in our country coming to our church. And we had people from African countries coming into our church. The mission field came to us. And I've been thinking about where we live. Look at all these factories that are going up all around us. Just driving from where we stay to here, I noticed some. Look at all the townships that are being built. Do you know that the world is coming to South Carolina? The mission field is coming to us. It's all around us. So there's no excuse. There's no reason why, as the people of God, we can exclude ourselves from the claim of Jesus, from the commission of Jesus, and from the command of Jesus, as we see in Matthew 28. People need Jesus. They're all around us. The question is, Don, will you obey? The question is, Sir, madam, will you obey? So whether you see this message as the authority of the risen king or whether you see it as our mission as the saints of God, you need to understand that the rescue mission of Jesus has been completed successfully. But our mission as the saints of God is far, far from being completed. How do you want to be received by the Lord? Well done, good and faithful servant. Or will the king perhaps say something negative to you or me? Come and pray. Surely, Lord, the greatest honor belongs to us in that you have chosen us and commissioned us to reach the nations with the gospel. You could have sent angels. You could have used any other divine method, yet you chose us to do your business. Thank you for giving us this great and important responsibility of making disciples for your kingdom and your cause. Forgive us, Lord, where we have failed you. Forgive us for being self-focused and self-absorbed. Forgive us for not being available. Forgive us for using the resources you give us for unimportant things. Grant us willing hearts, grant us serving spirits, grant us urgency, and use us to make disciples. Lord, we pray for those you have targeted for us to reach. Ready them with receptive hearts and a willing spirit, not just to hear, but to respond favorably to the gospel. And may they too continue to be fully discipled. And we thank you so much for the privilege of being able to pray unlike others, in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand and we're going to conclude our time of worship by singing together the hymn 32, Great is thy faithfulness, will you stand and worship God in song? Hymn 32.